53 through 72. (laughs) Okay. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build up another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know understand or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are Gal- Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word... Oh, God, this is hard to, uh, to revisit, to think through as we um, kind of sit in the space of the lead up to your sacrifice. And I just think of um, you remaining silent before your accusers. And um, just like a lamb before the slaughter, Lord. But you were not unaware of what was uh, before you. Uh, You knew full well what awaited you, the cup that was placed before you. And uh, I just thank you that uh, mercy and love held your tongue for us. And uh, I just pray that you would pour out your mercy and your love on us right now that you would empower Brandon with your spirit to speak your word, um, that it would pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name. Um, We are uh, in this teaching series called The Last Week, and Brett, I'll control from up here, buddy, so if you you see the screen moving, it's not you, it's me doing it. So, it's like, what's happening? Um, We are doing uh, a series called The Last Week. We are in the season of Lent as a church, and this is our Lenten journey towards the cross. Um, if Lent is a new, new term for you, just like we stopped um, at the beginning of the church calendar is Advent, and we stopped as a church um, and observed Advent together in preparation for the coming of Christ. 
come in his incarnation, the birth of the Messiah. And in Lent, it's 40 days minus Easter where we prepare our hearts for the resurrection of Jesus. We prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday. And so we are going through um, the last week of Jesus through the book of Mark as a way of just preparing our hearts. Lent simply means, it's like the Anglo-Saxon word for length. It just means it's like preparation. It's a preparation season. And so that's what this is as we enter in. Last week, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane crying out to his Father that this cup would pass. And Jesus, in his time of pressure, in his time of betrayal, he turns to the Father in like communion with him in prayer. Regardless of circumstances look like, it's that coming to God. And today we're going to look at Jesus' trial and Peter's denial of Jesus. And it's a long passage, so you want to start with a story? Is that okay? We'll start with a story. I'm going to tell you the story of the first time I um, betrayed uh, somebody. And it's a funny story, so just hang in there, okay? Um, you're like, man, this is going to go deep. Uh, so Liz and I, we were um, dating. We, we met each other at a summer camp. Um, that's how all good romances start, right? So we met each other at a summer camp. I was in the band with like some other guys thinking we were all cool. She was um, working the grounds, planting flowers, and I saw her and I was like, who is that? So um, that's how that thing started, but nothing happened. I tried to date her that summer. She would have really barely anything to do with me. Um, kept me humble. It was really good. But I was like, man, that girl, like I just really liked her. And we, like we went, I lived in Orange County, she lived in Fresno, and so we kind of went our separate ways, and like in my heart, I was like, I really liked that girl. I like, I wish and I hope it would work out, but it doesn't seem like it's going to. So, you know, you kind of like in college, you move on, and, but there's like little hope that that could have happened. And so the next year, uh, we're going to go play at that same camp, my band, and we had my best friend growing up, his name was Mark, and um, like we learned guitar together. He was the like lead guitarist in every band that I was in. Um, he was coming, he was going to join our band for that summer, but I had to convince our camp leader to like open up one more spot for the band, my best friend. And so like I go up there, I sell it. I'm like, man, we'll be great workers. Like he's my best friend. Let's have a full band. It's going to be amazing. And I'm trying to pitch it and sell it. And uh, my boss at the time, who ended up being our brother-in-law, knew that I liked Liz. And so I'm up there to convince him to bring my best friend up there. And he on the phone says, okay, Brandon, like, I hear you, like, I want to I do that, I want to bring your friend up there, I want to have a full band, but I only have one position to fill, and I, I really need to fill it with a girl, but I think I, I can do your band, but let me just tell you first, the person I want to fill the position with um, is Liz, and my, the girl I was like, oh, okay, and so he goes, like a smart, the boss, he looks, on the phone, he goes, so I'll let you decide, um, I'll let you decide. Do you, do you want uh, Liz to work? We need a female. Um, or you can bring your best friend up, your bandmate, um, to jam with you for the whole summer. And so I called my best friend and I said, buddy, they don't have a spot for you. Like, <laughs> there, there's, there's no room, buddy. And he was like, I'm so oh, bummer. We were, I was like, I'm so bummed. And um, anyway, I confessed later on. But that was, my, that was my moment of betrayal of my best friend for a long shot of this girl. And it worked out in the end. So... Um, so as we're starting today, walking through this journey, I want to start with that because what we walk into now um, is, uh, like Chris was saying as he was praying, it's a, um, we're walking into like the heavy moments of, of the gospel stories. And, and it's okay that it's like that. It's okay that we walk into some, um, some thickness of the story. We're going to see Jesus here on trial. 
being falsely accused. At one point, Jesus like being punched and slapped and spit upon. We're going to see Peter in his darkest moment, in his most vulnerable moment. And this is the passage that we get to walk into. Um, a passage that's on, we'll talk about this at the very end, but is on full display. All four Gospels have this account. All four Gospels have this story. And it's given to us for a reason. My, my hope is that we see it as a mirror for us. That the scriptures today become a mirror as we just get to say, okay, God, through your spirit, well, like, what do you have for me in this? And so can I just pray one more time, and then we'll dive in. Holy Spirit, come. As we just walk through your story, God, I pray that through your spirit, you would just illuminate the parts that you have for us as a community together, that you have for us as a church, that you have for us individually as we, as we follow you, as we apprentice to you. God, may even today as we read the story, like what a grace it is that we even have this. We have a window into Peter's um, like most vulnerable and darkest moment. And you give it to us, and I think as a way of just, as just saying look and see and grow. Um, grow in your discipleship. And so Jesus, I pray that that's what happens this morning. So we come to your word, um, and we ask God that you um, would speak. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's go verse by verse. Uh, let's start in, in verse 33. If you don't have your Bible, I'll throw it up on the screens as well. So this is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Mark, 15, Mark 14, 53 says this. They took Jesus. Remember, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas betrays him. The guards take him in the middle of the night. The disciples scatter. And they take Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law come together. So they come together at the high priest's private residence. And the scriptures here say that all the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, this is the Sanhedrin that's gathered. And when you think about the Sanhedrin, I want you to think about like a religious um, flavor of a supreme court. This is the highest court of the land. At this time, Palestine is under Roman occupation and rule. And the Sanhedrin had full power in like religious matters, but they did not have the power to inflict the death penalty. That was given to the Roman occupying powers, Pilate, who we'll meet later on. But they gather around Jesus. They bring him into this place to prepare criminal charges against him so that he can be tried before Pilate, before the governor of of this area on behalf of Rome. And so here is Jesus taken into a house to stand trial. And before we get to the trial, Mark is doing something really interesting here. And you're going to see it in this next verse. He is giving us um, a comparison. We have Jesus who is inside this house on trial, and we have Peter who is outside in the courtyard. And there's so many different comparisons that is happening in the narrative. We see, we last saw Peter trying to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, he pulls out a sword. He starts a brawl. He actually cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus heals that servant's ear, and the rest of the disciples, they flee. And so here again is, is, is Jesus on trial and Peter outside. Look at the next verse, verse 54. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priests. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. But this time it's from a distance. 
He is so convert that he sits with the guards, those holding his rabbi captive, and he blends in and he warms himself by the fire. Peter here is a paradox. He stays with Jesus. All the other disciples flee, but Peter stays. He shows his devotion to Jesus. However, there's a distance. Do you see that? He follows from a distance. He remains a disciple. He remains following, but this time from a distance, warming himself by the fire. Often we hear this story of of Peter's denial, and we um, can kind of shortchange Peter a little bit. Peter's actions this night of his arrest are something to be commended for in some way. Um, One commentator I read today said, Peter is filled with, I love this, fantastically reckless courage. Like that's, what, that's the Peter we encounter in the Gospels. Fantastically reckless courage. He, he gets out of a boat to, to walk on water towards Jesus. He pulls out his sword, ready to brawl at any moment. Peter himself said in Matthew 26, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. It may be that the others have fled, but Peter here, in a way, is keeping his word, isn't he? All the other disciples flee. This is that Peter followed close behind, and he's near. He is near Jesus. That's not the end of the story, as we will see. But at this moment, Peter has not abandoned Jesus. All the other disciples have, but Peter is there. And Mark here sets up a contrast for us to see. Jesus is in the inner part of the house on trial. Peter is in a courtyard. Jesus stands accused on trial. Peter is on a, by fire warming himself. Jesus will be faithful with his testimony before false accusations. Peter will be faithless with his testimony before accurate accusations. It's this contrast between the two. Mark brings us back to the trial of Jesus. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. You get this picture of them looking just searching for some reason to put Jesus to death, but they cannot find any. If you have your Bibles, go back to the very first verse of Mark. We see that Mark says, like, this was their intent all along. In the very first uh, verse of Mark 14, it says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. And so here's their intents from the beginning. They've always been looking for this, and now's their chance. And they start looking for evidence, but it says, but they still can't find any. Again, the Sanhedrin, again, is the supreme court. It was composed of 71 members, with its membership being of the Sadducees, that were the priestly class, the Pharisees, and the scribes, the experts of the law, and respected, and respected elders. Um, just like to give a, like a visual of it, it looks something like this. Um, This is what that kind of would have looked like. Surrounded in a half circle, the accused in the center, um, some witnesses in the back, the high priests in the top. So just as a visual, just imagine this scene for a second. Here's Jesus, everybody around him looking for something, looking for a reason. This is the Sanhedrin. Just a little bit about this background so we get this. The proceedings for a trial like this were laid out in an oral tradition called the Mishpah. So they had this oral tradition where they would have proper proceedings, just proceedings. 
The court, they sat in a semicircle, allowing the members of the court to see each other and other members. You had witnesses for the accused that were allowed to speak for them. And the official meeting place for the Sanhedrin was the Hall of Hewn Stone. That's a great name, isn't it? The Hall of Hewn Stone. It sounds like a Harry Potter film, is what I've been thinking all week. But that's their official meeting place, the place they should be meeting. It's in the temple area. And the decision of the Sanhedrin wasn't valid unless it reached a meeting in that place, the Hall of Hewn Stone. The court would not meet at night. They would never meet at night, nor could it meet in any of the great feasts. And when evidence was taken, witnesses were examined separately so that their evidence would collapse. To sit and think, was there any room towards mercy or to change their mind? And so here is Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Jesus is not on trial in the official building, the Hall of Hewn Stone, right? They're in the high priest's house. What time of day are they meeting? They're meeting at night. They do not allow a full night to pass when they condemn Jesus to death. In a sense, they're breaking all of their traditions and all of their, their laws and their ways of doing this. You just kind of see this visceral like, we have to get this guy. Now is the time. It's a kangaroo court in that way. Yet even, not real kangaroos, sorry. It's a, it's a saying. Um, like, there's no kangaroos in there. It's a, it's, it's a sham is what that means. It's a sham. Let's do the next verse. Verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony about him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with his hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Like, it, it just continues. Their testimony does not agree. We don't have uh, this reference in the Gospel of Mark, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus does say something similar to the temple being his body, destroy this temple, we'll raise again in three days. But Jesus never said the words reported here by his false accusers. Essentially, what the, what the accusation is, is here is Jesus, a terrorist, going to destroy the temple. But this is untrue. Verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. The high priest stands up of the twisting of the world and says that Jesus remains silent. Jesus does not address the lies. The lies are there, and in silence, he lets that happen. In a sense, not agreeing with it, not defending himself. You would imagine you in this space, if you were getting thrown lies, how would you? I, I would want to defend. No, 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 that's not true. That's not true. Jesus remains silent. Next verse. Again, the high priest asked him, changes his tactic, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Just another name for God there. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And this time Jesus does speak. Verse 62 I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus takes a psalm and an image from Daniel 7 and he merges them together. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is like, he, he answers truthfully. When the false testimony was at him before, he remained silent. And this time, the high priest says, are, are you the Messiah, the, the Son of the Blessed One? He says, that's true. 
I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Essentially, we don't have time for it this morning, but essentially Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah and I will actually judge you in ways. That's, that's, that's how that would have come across um, to this high priest. So let's see how he reacts. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. And then they blindfolded him. And they struck him with their fists. And they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. What a, what a moment. Our Lord Jesus, falsely accused as I am the Messiah, the high priest tears his robe and it becomes, and you see what it becomes, it becomes this mob, what it really is. Some began to spit him, they blindfold him, they struck him with their fists, they said prophesy, essentially saying they would hit him and say, if you really were a prophet, you would know who would hit, was hitting you. Who is hitting you, Jesus? This is what's happening inside the house. What is happening outside the house? I, I want to focus on that today. Peter's denial. Let's do our next verse, verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. He leaves the fire after his first denial. He goes into the entryway. Mark takes our attention from inside the trial, back outside to the courtyard where Peter is sitting again, warming himself by the fire. And again, remember, Peter has shown himself to be faithful up to this point. A faithful disciple, true to his claim. All the others have fled, but here is Peter, as close to his rabbi as possible. In last week's teaching, we got to start with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, before his arrest, before Judas's betrayal. Uh, but something's really important to this, this part of the chapter. It's right before that that we didn't get to hit. It's in Mark 14. This is where Peter is saying, like, no, that's not going to be me, Jesus. I'm not going to deny you. Jesus says to the disciples right before the garden, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, actually, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Like you just have Peter's passion, his reckless passion again. And this is Jesus' response to him. And I imagine him looking at Peter, like looking at him in the eyes, like just Peter's response, I will not fall away. Jesus looks at him and says, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. How does Peter respond? Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the others, what'd they do? All the others say the same. Yeah. They all say the same. No, that's not, that won't be us, God. And within just a few verses, they all scatter. 
And now here's Peter denying exactly what he said he wouldn't do just a few in the story, just a few verses before that. Peter basically says, like, even if everybody, all these blokes leave you, like, I will not. I imagine this is what Jesus says to him as he just looks into his eyes. One commentator um, uh, on Mark, N.T. Wright, draws attention to the double picture that's happening in Mark. Mark sandwiches the stories that we're reading between his prophecy that Peter will deny him and then his arrest and then his trial. And then here's Peter now denying Jesus. Peter arrives at the high, uh, high priest's courtyard while Jesus is inside getting punched and blindfolded and saying, prophesy, tell us which one is, 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 is hitting you. Essentially, they're calling him a false prophet. And what we do as Mark zooms out is he goes into the courtyard and exactly what Jesus said would happen is happening. You see some of the contrast there. Exactly what he says is happening is happening. After a while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them for you are a Galilean. Surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean. He, his northern Galilean accent, in a sense, gives him away. Um, if, some of, if, if you were here today, if someone came and visited and we went out to dinner and they were like, I'll have a pop. And they said, this pop is hella cool. I'll be like, you were from Northern California, right? Like we know instantly like your accent, your accent gave you away. That's what the servant girl is saying in a sense. She goes, I know, surely you're one of them for you are a Galilean. Verse 71, he begins Peter to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Peter essentially is saying here, like, may this happen to me. May such and such happen to me if, in fact, I am lying. And he swears to them. And then he says that haunting line, I don't know this man. I don't know this, my rabbi who I've walked with for three years. I don't know this man. And the last line, um, verse 71 He began, let's read that again. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately, as soon as he says it, the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter's response, and he broke down and wept. This is our story for today. The gospel reading of today. This is a, a, a picture of it. Like sometimes I love, just art helps me a little bit. Um, this is from Caravaggio. I think he's French. This is from the 1600s, like the, the beginning of the 1600s of Peter's denial. Um, there's something I was meditating on this week, a few of these. And one aspect of the story that I found um, just compelling to this is that this is Peter's most like, this is his rawest moment in a sense. And I saw that in this painting, I saw that in his face. You just see this like, this, this turning away from, from, who he, from who he is, this like arguing, no, I'm not that man, I'm not that person, I don't know this man. You have the servant girl, you have the guard, both trying to figure out, is this him? Is this him? If you notice, they have, there's three fingers pointing at Jesus, or pointing at Peter, I guess three denials. Two from the servant girl, one from the guard, trying to decide who he is, if he is, in fact, the Galilean, the disciple of Jesus of Nazarene. Where's Peter's fingers pointing? 
You notice that? There's this inwardness. There's this like, one person I saw talking about this, there's this pointing to the heart of him. Two fingers towards his heart. Peter's disowning of Jesus is our denial. No different than our own. His denial offers a mirror into our souls of the moments in our lives when things don't go according to plan. When Peter was ready for a revolution like the rest of the Jewish people were in their Messiah, when things don't go as planned, Peter disowns. What is denial? Denial is a lack of memory or forgetting or a loss of focus Peter as our own. And yes, our failures might not be as glorious as Peter's here, but every apprentice, every disciple of Jesus, I don't know how long you've been following Jesus, But on this journey with him, we must learn how to actually deal with our own failure. We must learn how to confront our own journey in that failure as well. It's an inevitable part of the story, an inevitable part of the journey. And typically, as as followers of Jesus, we take two positions. One, we ignore our failure, or we pretend it doesn't exist. Or two, we bend under the crushing weight of our failure. We either deny it or we let it annihilate us. And in the midst of our shortcomings and our failings, I want want us to look at Jesus' response to that. Our journey towards the cross is that that confronting of of our brokenness, a confronting of where we do fall short. And my prayer for us today, and I want you just like to imagine for a second, I want you to bring... um, like all, 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 just like bring that towards Jesus. I've been wanting to do that all week with myself. Like here's my failures, Jesus, and to bring them. So just even in your mind, like imagine what those are, what the Spirit brings to your heart, and just hold them out in front of Jesus. I want us to see just three things really quickly that Jesus prays for us in our inevitably moments of failure. Jesus beholds us in the midst of our failure. And Jesus restores us despite our failure. First, Jesus prays. Um, If you have your Bible, go to Luke, Luke 22. If you want to go there, I'll throw it up on the screen as well. But again, like I said, all four Gospels have this account of Peter's denial. And in Luke's account, uh, Peter denies him three times, but there's this really interesting line in Luke's account of the same story. Luke 22, 33 Um, first says this, but he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison. This is Peter talking and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me. You will deny three times that you know me. So Luke says, here's the denial. But just before that, in verse 31, as Peter, we see his boldness, he pledges his strength. He doesn't acknowledge his weakness, but this is right before that. This is what Jesus said to Peter. In Luke's account, Simon, which is Simon Peter, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. What does it say in verse 32? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, before his denial, prays for Simon. Do you see that? Does Peter pray that Sorry, does Jesus pray that Peter will not deny him? It stuck out to me this week. Jesus doesn't pray that Peter won't deny him, but what he does pray for is Peter's long-term victory 
in the midst of his short-term failure. There's a spiritual battle for Peter. And it has the ability to destroy Peter's faith on a faith level. But Jesus prays, one, that his faith won't fail, that he will return. And upon return, he will strengthen his brothers. In the midst of Peter's failure, the midst of our failure, the prayer of Jesus is for an enduring faith. And this is where we don't let the failure that we have in discipling to Jesus, we don't let it crush us or annihilate us. We acknowledge it, but we don't let it crush us. Jesus prays that his faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, within our failure, sometimes we can allow our faith to fail as well. And Jesus' prayer is when you turn back. When you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Number two for us this morning, again, with our just failure in front of Jesus, Jesus sees. In this passage of Luke, we see again the sincerity of Peter. Um, Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to death, to even prison. Peter, in every single story, is saying, like, it won't be me, Jesus. Like, it won't be me. He makes this promise in utter sincerity, with deep love in his heart, fully intended to keep his word, but he broke his promise quickly in the face of pressure and adversity. Genuine intentions, our genuine intentions aren't enough to keep us from sinning. Our sin isn't always a result of hypocrisy or even intended desire. Often we sin out of just simple weakness. And it's from that place of weakness that we can tend to justify or even rationalize our failure or our sin. Like, it's not that bad. It was just a weak moment. It's not part of me. But the betrayal here is still betrayal. The disowning is still disowning. The denying is still denying. And, there's, and the real consequences of that out of weakness. Here, Peter didn't want to deny Jesus. He just wasn't strong enough to not do it. And whether it's in our life, Um, the failings of like bitterness, the sin of gossip, the sin of slander, the sexual sin, if it's jealousy, if it's greed, if it's hatred, or anything else we run to out of like loneliness and insecurity and fear, or if it's just a season. But even when we give in out of weakness, it's still denying. And we join Peter in saying, I don't know this man. But I love it in this account because then the rooster crows. Then the rooster crows. Ronald Rollheiser, read this week, says this, while sincerity, Peter's sincere, while sincerity doesn't necessarily save us from sin, it does help us hear the rooster crow. The rooster crows, and Peter remembers. And I was thinking this way, like, what is that, that sound that Peter probably heard all the time? The familiar sound of a rooster crowing. Some of you have chickens or roosters in your yard. Yay, Bakersfield, you know, you know the sound. You hear it all the time. Peter hears all the time, but this time he hears it differently. The rooster crows. That sound of the rooster crowing is both a revealing judgment on Peter's denial, and it's also a revealing grace. His sincerity allows him to hear it, to remember Jesus' words. Um, If you're still in Luke, go ahead to Luke 22, 60. This is uh, a really interesting detail that Luke adds in his gospel account and for us today. Luke 22, 60 says this, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, so just as he's denying the third time, the rooster crows. And in Luke's account, this is what he adds. 
Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. It's an interesting detail in Luke's account. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord spoke to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. A very important part of this picture of, of, betray, of Peter betraying Jesus is that look that Peter sees on Jesus' face as he catches his eye. One more piece of just artwork for us to contemplate today. Um, this is from an artist called Blotch. This is like um, 1800s. Another rendition of Peter's denial. You have two roosters crowing. There he is warming himself by the fire. The smoke is uh, only going towards Peter, if you notice that. The lion representing Peter above him is like a, a sadness. But there's still the sun rising. I don't know if you notice that a little bit. The sun's rising. A little hope. You have Jesus in the background um, being led away, tied up. Um, Jesus' cloak, his robe is the same color as Peter's. You notice that? His disciple of him. But Peter's grayed out. He's, he's, He's covering it. He's covering his discipleship. Peter turned away, weeping bitterly. And the piece that I loved about this one the most, I was always sitting there, it's like, you want to know what Jesus' face looks like in there, but it's a little blurred out, isn't it? It's a little shadowy. And I want you to use your imagination for a second. Even though that means like closing your eyes and imagine that scene. Imagine you being Peter, warm by the fire, your burial. It's intentional because we are supposed to imagine what the look is. In your mind eye, in the midst of your failure, if you catch Jesus' eye, what do you see? What's the look? Is it disappointment? Is Jesus' face one of sadness? Is it indifference? When you close your eyes and you imagine Jesus' face looking at you, is it anger? We name it because how we see the face of Jesus in this imaginative exercise actually reveals a lot about how we view God. Reveals a lot about how we view God. Do you see love? Luke tells us that Jesus turned around and looked straight at Peter. And whenever the Gospels tell us that Jesus looked at somebody, generally means he looks at that person with deep intention and love. Not just to see you, but to actually behold you. Do you know the difference? Not to see, but to behold. To see all of you in all of the mess and all of the wonder, but to behold. It's the same word that when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler that wants to follow Jesus, I've obeyed all the laws, and it says that Jesus looked at him with love. And he said to the rich young ruler, sell all your possessions and come follow me. And the rich man, it said, walked away sad because he couldn't do it. In Peter's ultimate moment of humiliation and betrayal, like I, I want to imagine that he, he, he sees Jesus looking in this way, beholding him in the mess. And the tears we weep when we are met with love in our weakness are different than the tears we weep when we feel judged and humiliated. It says here that Peter broke down and wept. He wept bitterly. He saw the look of the Savior's face, his rabbi's face, in light of his denial, and he weeps bitterly. Lastly, Jesus restores. Peter wasn't the only one to betray Jesus. Remember, Judas did as well. 
except Peter kept turning towards Jesus. In John's gospel, we get the restoration of Peter after Jesus' resurrection back at the Sea of Galilee. Peter and the disciples are back fishing. The resurrected Jesus shows up on the shore and calls out to the disciples to throw their nets on the other side, and they catch a huge catch of fish. In the boat, John recognizes that it's Jesus on the shore, and it says, we don't have time for today, but Peter actually puts on his cloak and then dives into the water, like ever the reckless, passionate person. Just, like He just keeps going. He jumps and he swims over to meet his rabbi at the shore, the resurrected Jesus. And on the shore, Jesus has made another fire, and he's cooking fish. And here Peter is again around a fire, this time warming himself. But Jesus is cooking. And it says this in John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Begins to restore Peter. That's the first time. Second, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to, to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. For truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to Peter, what's he say? Follow me. Follow me, Peter. The very first thing he said to Peter when Peter was on the shore by his nets, he says it again. And he restores Peter. Jesus prays that in the moment of our failures, our faith will remain. It's Jesus' prayer for you as well this morning. Jesus looks at us in the midst of our failure and he beholds us in the middle of it. Often we think of Jesus in the midst of our failure as distance and not even around. No, Jesus looks and he sees and he beholds us. Jesus restores and Jesus simply asks this of Peter, do you love me? And it's the same response that Jesus has for you, like in our failure. It's the question of, of loves. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He restores him in this way. And as we end, just to think about this, thinking of Peter's denial this weekend, all four of accounts, only in John does, does, does John maybe mention that there's a, possibly like another disciple there with him. How did we get the story of Peter's denial is from Peter himself. Mark, the author of Mark, is writing from Peter's like teachings and his sermons. This is Peter. And Peter is saying, this is my story. This is me when I denied him, and this is me when he restored me. When we read these passages, it's actually this, this beginning of the story of healing that, Jesus, that Peter is sharing with us. This is where I failed, and this is how Jesus healed me. This is where I messed up, and this is how Peter, this is how Jesus healed me of that. And so for us this morning, as we walk through the Lenten journey, as we walk towards the cross, Lent is actually a season where we are honest about, our, honest about our, our spiritual state. The Lenten journey is about hearing the rooster crowing. The Lenten journey is about walking away from a warm fire and weeping over our failing. 
The Lenten journey is about barren trees preparing to bloom again. The Lenten journey is about a reminder of the ever-pursuing God, the ever-pursuing Christ who looks upon us with love in our weakness. And the Lenten journey is a time for changing our minds. That's what repentance is. The Lenten journey is preparing our souls to receive again the resurrection power of Christ. And so in the Lenten season, my encouragement to you this morning is to bring those failures, if they're there, and are, to Christ, to have him behold, to have him restore, to hear his prayer for you. Jesus sees us in our failure. Jesus prays for us for our return, and Jesus restores what's broken. So as we go into our time of taking the bread and cup, we're going to take communion together. Um, this is the central act of like what we do as we gather together. This is the moment. We take the bread, we take Christ's body broken for us, we take his blood poured out for us, and in thanksgiving we remember the cross, we remember Christ's love for us. This is a time of actually thanksgiving. It's a, it's a time of saying, God, like when I confess to you, you are faithful and just to forgive me. I want to read this passage um, that came up in prayer this morning. We were praying today that there would like, be a moment, like that there'd be healing today. And just this prayer, like in the midst of whatever failures you have with Jesus, my prayer is that you bring them to him, that you experience grace, and that you experience a healing from God in the midst of our failure. 1 John 1, 5 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not have, we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, verse 9, this is for us this morning, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray.